Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com slash castle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle, episode number 39, for January 20th, 2009. Honest Man, by Naomi Kritzer. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. The holidays are always hectic, but they were particularly hectic for me this year. My husband got confirmation that he was being hired at his new job on December 23rd. That same day, we drove four hours south to the new city where we'll be living, found an apartment, signed up for a credit check, and drove back to my parents for a hasty Christmas-slash-packing session. We moved on the 5th, the same day that my husband started work at his new company. Several furious days of unpacking later, our apartment is starting to look like a place where people live, instead of a place where piled cardboard boxes go to die. This is our first permanent residence where one of us hasn't been going to school, so it's the first time we've dug all our possessions out of our parents' garages and put them in one place. We're going to need to acquire a few new bookcases. Whoever would have guessed. Between my recently hectic life and a couple of other behind-the-scenes tumults, we've been a bit late in our last few episodes. Sorry about that. We'll get it fixed as soon as possible. When we have a chance to catch up, I'll run two episodes a week for a while, so you can be sure to get your full yearly complement of fantasy podcasts. Today's story is Honest Man by Naomi Kritzer, a fantasy and science fiction writer who lives in Minneapolis with a husband and two small children. She calls the kids her day job. On her live journal, she writes, I write mostly at night and on weekends. Writing takes too much concentration to do it when I'm simultaneously trying to listen for sudden escalations and squabbling, or long, suspicious silences. Naomi Kritzer has published several fantasy novels, Fires of the Faithful, Turning the Storm, Freedom's Gate, Freedom's Apprentice, and Freedom's Sisters. She has a new novel set in Minneapolis, which is currently looking for a home. Honest Man first appeared in Realms of Fantasy. It's read for us by Podcastle assistant editor and co-host Anne Leckie. Links in this introduction can be found online at podcastle.org. Enjoy the story. Fiddle Game, November 15th, 1943, Washington, D.C. A cold rain was falling when Iris came out of the Department of Justice building onto Constitution Avenue. Worse, she'd stayed late filing and had missed not only her usual bus, but the next bus as well. There was a diner across the street from her bus stop. She could see an open sign and the tempting glow of light. She started to count the money in her purse, but her hesitation was blown away by a gust of wind and a fresh sheet of rain. She dashed across the street and into the diner, coming in out of breath, lipstick smeared and hat askew, the bell over the door clanging as she wiped her feet on the mat and looked around for a place to sit. The diner smelled of fried eggs, clean floors, and slightly scorched coffee. It was nearly empty. A man in a suit sat up on a stool at the counter. A man in a long, well-worn raincoat sat in a booth near the door, looking out at the rain. Iris took a seat at the counter. "'I'll just have a cup of coffee, please,' she said to the waitress. "'I have perfectly good food at home. I can go home and make some supper for myself.' But the rain was falling even harder, so she looked over the menu, sighed, and said, "'Oh, just the grilled cheese and a cup of tomato soup, please.' The man in the suit caught her eye while she was waiting. "'Nice weather, huh?' he said. "'Do you work for Mr. Hoover?' "'Yes, sir, I do,' she said, typing and filing. "'Good for you.' 
I'm just passing through town myself. I'm an art dealer when we're not at war. I don't expect there's much call for that during wartime. Oh, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. But I wanted to contribute more directly to the war effort, so right now I buy and sell surplus, getting scrap from scrap drives delivered to places where it's needed, that sort of thing. Art is just a sideline for now. He glanced up to smile at the waitress as she refilled his coffee. My name's Leo. He handed her a business card. It said, Leonard Franklin. Leo like the lion. Franklin like the first name of the President of the United States of America. My name is Iris. Iris Kirkwood. Iris! You're serious? I have a sister named Iris. Can you believe it? The waitress arrived with Iris's coffee, steaming hot. I've always just been thankful my mother didn't name me Petunia, Iris said with a game smile. I think it's a beautiful name. He gave her a smile warm enough that Iris started to wonder if she should mention her boyfriend serving in the infantry, but he made no further overtures, and she decided he was just being friendly. The waitress came out of the kitchen with Iris's sandwich and soup, then continued to the table up front to give the man his check. Iris's supper, at least, was really good. The bread was fresh, the cheese tart, the tomato soup creamy. Or maybe it was just the lingering chill and the rain outside that made everything taste so good. Iris glanced up at the art dealer turned scrap dealer, and since he was looking away from her, dunked a piece of her sandwich in the soup. She was never certain whether you were allowed to do that sort of thing in restaurants. Excuse me. The man from the front of the restaurant was talking to the waitress, his face obviously distressed. I am so, so sorry, ma'am. "'but I just realized that I left my wallet back at my room. "'I'm going to have to go get it before I can pay, "'but I don't want you to think I'm running out on my bill. "'I can leave my instrument here as security.' "'He had a violin case, Iris saw. "'He opened it up to show the waitress the violin inside. "'This is a good violin. "'I paid fifty dollars for it a few years back, "'but I think it's worth more.' "'The waitress glanced at it and grunted. "'It looks like it's worth more than your meal anyway.' Go ahead and get your wallet. I'll be right back, he promised, and went back out into the rain. Iris was finishing her sandwich when she heard Leo say, Can I take a look at that? What, the violin? The waitress shrugged. I don't see why not. Leo opened the case and took out the instrument, turning it over in his hands and holding it up to the light. She heard him let out a long, appreciative breath and looked up to see him swallow hard. For a moment, his eyes darted around the room, like a man with a poker hand that he knows will win the night. Then he looked back up at Iris, and at the waitress. My God, he said, this is a Stradivarius. Strata what? One of the rarest and most valuable violins ever constructed. Most are in the hands of collectors, museums. It's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe more. At the waitress's skeptical look, he gave Iris another warm smile. I was just telling Miss Kirkwood here that I was an art dealer before the war. These days I mostly deal scrap, but I do make an exception when fate throws the truly exceptional piece my way. I would happily pay $200,000 for this violin. Cash. I'm quite sure that when the war is over, I'll be able to resell this instrument for many times that. Oh, won't that man be happy, Iris said. You could tell he didn't have much money. Where did he say he was going? Leo asked the waitress. Back to his room. He didn't say where it was, but it can't be that far. Minutes ticked past. 
Leo reverently set the violin back into its case, then checked his wristwatch. Oh, dear, he said, my train. Well, another couple of minutes won't hurt. They waited. Iris finished her coffee. The waitress, watching the door, left her cup empty. Another sheet of rain came down outside. Iris looked at the clock on the wall. She had just missed the next bus, but this was exciting enough that she didn't care. I really can't wait any longer, Leo said, finally. He gave the waitress his business card. When the man comes back, and surely he's planning on coming back, give him my card and tell him to call me collect tomorrow morning at my office in New York City. I will be pleased to offer him $200,000 for his violin, and in the meantime I do urge him to take very good care of it. He put on his hat and raincoat. It was a pleasure to meet you, Miss Kirkwood, he said, and went out in a jingle of bells and a blast of damp wind. Well, the waitress said in amazement and looked down at the violin on the counter. Suddenly realizing that it might be vulnerable to a spill, she moved it over to an empty table and then refilled Iris's coffee cup. Dessert for you today, ma'am? Iris had already mentally counted out the money for dinner against the money she had left before next payday. No, thank you, she said. But thank you for the coffee. I'll have to admit, I don't think anything could get me out of this restaurant before that man comes back for his violin. Think of the look on his face. Not five minutes passed before the man was back. He had a ragged wallet in his pocket now and carefully counted out the money for his meal. So, about that violin, the waitress said, and glanced nervously at Iris. You know, my nephew is thinking of taking up violin, and my sister could really use an instrument. Would you be willing to sell it? But, Iris whispered, the waitress pulled down a piece of the peach pie, Iris's favorite, and set it down in front of Iris like a promise. Oh, I couldn't sell it, the man said. It's my livelihood. I play on street corners. Even in wartime, or maybe especially in wartime, people like to hear music. It lifts their spirits. I'd be happy to play for you to thank you for your understanding about the wallet. The waitress shook her head impatiently. Surely you'd be willing for the right price. You said you'd paid fifty? I'll give you a hundred. The man shook his head. I paid fifty, but it's a better violin than that. I couldn't let it go for less than five hundred. Two hundred, the waitress said. Wait, Iris said with a glare at the waitress. She elbowed the pie aside. Don't listen to her. There was a man in here a few minutes ago who said your violin was really valuable. He said he'd pay two hundred thousand dollars for it, and you should call his office tomorrow, collect. He lives in New York City. She dug in her own coat pocket and triumphantly produced Leo's business card. Leo Franklin. Leo like the lion, Franklin like the president. The waitress's glare could have soured whiskey. Iris averted her eyes, feeling a little guilty. But really, how unfair and wrong not to tell a man what his property was worth if you knew. I think you should wait and sell the violin tomorrow. The man turned towards Iris, cocked his head to one side, and looked her up and down. It was a strange look, not the look of a poor man who'd just learned that his property was worth thousands of dollars, more the look of a fox that had approached the hen house and found it locked. But then he gave her a wistful smile and said, I thank you, ma'am. His lips twitched as he turned to the waitress. As kind as your offer was, I think I shall have to refuse it. He glanced down at the pie. Since it seems I am about to come into some money, ma'am, let me thank you by paying for your meal. He counted out the money for sandwich, soup, coffee, and pie, and even included a generous tip. Good night to both of you. 
Iris ate her pie quickly. The waitress's stony glare made her nervous. She braced herself for the wind and rain and stepped out. To her relief, the rain had stopped while she was eating, replaced with a thick fog. She crossed the street to wait for her bus, thinking over the evening, and stepped forward when she saw headlights coming toward her in the fog. But instead of a bus, a black Lincoln town car pulled up. The window rolled down, and Leo looked out at her from the passenger side window. Can I offer you a ride, ma'am? Oh! She stepped backwards, startled to see him. He said he was catching a train. Why is he in a car? I gave the man your card. The waitress wasn't going to tell him. Can you believe it? She was going to buy it for a hundred dollars and sell it to you herself. Let me show you something, Leo said, and climbed out of the car. He opened the trunk, and Iris looked in to see a dozen identical violin cases. We paid twenty-five dollars each for them. The man you saw inside is an associate of mine. He's driving the car, in fact. We, ahem, test the honesty of waitresses, bartenders, and restaurant owners all over this great country of ours. He closed the trunk. Iris stared at him, speechless. They say you can't cheat an honest man. That's not true. It's easy to cheat an honest man if he assumes that others are as honest as he is. But as a matter of principle, I won't cheat an honest man. He doffed his hat, held it to his chest, and bowed to Iris. Would you like a souvenir, ma'am? A violin, perhaps? I hear there's a man in New York City who will pay two hundred thousand dollars for violins. I don't need anything from you, she said. No, but I have a small gift for you, regardless. His hat still in his hand, he covered his face with it momentarily, then set it back on his head and said, "Your soldier will come home safe. You should marry him because he will make an excellent husband to you. You will have many, many happy years together, and two children, a girl and a boy." Iris shook her head. You could say that to any girl in Washington, and she'd think you had the second sight. You're right, of course, but your soldier is named Ben. Benny, really, but he prefers Ben. And you will be very happy together. A final bow, and Leo got back into the car and disappeared into the night. I can't believe you didn't tell anybody. The Virginia farmhouse, two months later, was dark around them, their father long asleep. The lamp on the kitchen table guttered a little, and Iris's sister Reva adjusted the glow. Why? Iris asked. Well, he was a con man. He as much as told you so, he had a trunk full of violins. You could have called the police, or just told your boss the next day you work for the FBI. But if the waitress had given him the money, she would have deserved it, don't you think? She was trying to cheat him. For all you know, she has family at home who need that money to live on. What did they do to deserve being cheated? Well, but she didn't buy that violin. Only because you stopped her. I should go back there and tell her. Might make her more appreciative. Right now, she's probably cursing my name every night. Probably. How do you think he knew that my soldier's name is Ben? You probably mentioned it and just forgot. No, I didn't. Besides, if I did, how did he know that Ben's given name is Benny? Maybe you had a letter and dropped it. I thought of that, but I checked. I keep all of Ben's letters in a box at home, and they're all there. Well, maybe he does have the second sight. It would be useful for a con man, don't you think? Reva shook her head again. I can't believe you didn't tell anyone. Ben will understand, Iris thought. She had already told him the story. She'd written to him about it the same night it happened and sent the letter off to the base in England where he was stationed. It took months for his reply to reach her, but when it did, she could almost hear the chuckle in his Yankee voice as she read. 
I'm glad to hear that your con man at least bought you some good peach pie. As for that waitress, if she had been cheated, it would have served her right for trying to cheat a man out of his violin. As for him knowing my name, well, my mother has a second sight, or so I was always told. I've never seen as it does her much use. Maybe she should go into violin sales. At any rate, I'm glad to hear the con man thinks I'll be coming home to you, because I'd like to introduce you to my mother one of these days, and I can hardly wait to see your beautiful smile again. Fortune Teller, June 17, 1952, Campbell County, Virginia. Nights were dark in the country. People kept saying that there'd be electricity at all the farms within three years, but no matter how many years passed, electricity to Iris and Ben's farms always seemed to be about two years away. Ben was in town working the night shift at his new job at the gas company. Upstairs, Iris could hear her father coughing and cringed a little inside, listening. They said just a few months. Months, not years. It's not like the electricity. There will be a spot in the Catawba Sanatorium once he gets to the top of the list. We'll just keep all our windows open and hope for the best. I wouldn't worry so much if it weren't for Mitzi. No child should be exposed to tuberculosis, but Mitzi was already so small and weak. Born a little too early and a little too small, the doctor had told Iris she couldn't risk breastfeeding her. Then the formula had made her sick, and for months she hadn't gained weight. Now at five, she weighed less than 30 pounds. Eric, the baby, was almost 20 pounds already, grown fat and cheerful on his mother's milk. Iris did her best to keep her children away from her father and boiled every sheet and pillowcase in the house daily, drawing the water up from the well on the porch and heating it on the stove. Daddy has nowhere else to go. Nowhere. He went into debt for the first time in his life to send me to business school. It's not his fault he got sick. I have to trust in God. God wouldn't punish me for doing the right thing by my daddy, would he? Then again, Daddy never did anything to deserve tuberculosis, either. She heard the crunch of someone's footsteps outside. Ben, she said, hopefully, though it was hours until he would usually get home. Ma'am? She opened the door and looked out onto the porch. A ragged-looking man stood on the porch, a bundle of something tucked under his arm. She felt a brief prickle of fear, but the bundle was just a ragged knapsack, and he didn't look dangerous, just poor. He did a slight double-take when he saw her, and she thought he must have expected her husband. "'My husband is working in town, but my father is upstairs if you need a man for something,' she said. "'It's a strange time for a visit. Do you need help?' He was silent for a moment, then said, "'I'm hungry, ma'am.' I was just wondering if I could have some food in exchange for doing a few chores. He had a jumpy, rangy look, and his eyes were hollow. I'm not going to set a hungry man to working. Come on into the kitchen if you want something to eat. We can talk about chores once you're fed. Thank you, ma'am, he said, and followed her into the house. Despite his hollow eyes, he was clean. Inside, she saw that his clothes were mended, though he had holes in his shoes. There were fresh eggs and bread, so she made him eggs on toast. There was plenty of bread left. Mitzi had picked at her supper as usual. Iris made herself an egg as well and then sat down at the kitchen table. Upstairs, she heard her father coughing again. "'What's your name?' she asked the stranger after he'd eaten half his eggs. "'Joe Truman. Joe like the ball player. Truman like the President of the United States of America. "'I am Mrs. Green. "'It's a pleasure to meet you, ma'am. "'And your eggs are very fine. Thank you.' I'd like to repay your kindness now if you've got any chores that need doing. I'd just love it if you'd sit here while I cut some wood for the stove and come get me if my baby wakes up and cries or if my father needs anything. Ma'am, please let me cut some wood for you. All right, then. Wood's out back. I'll get you a lantern to take with you. 
Iris washed the dishes. She went upstairs to check on her father. His eyes were closed, and if he wasn't asleep, he pretended to be. Downstairs again, she washed her hands and then checked on Mitzi and Eric. Eric sometimes woke this time of night to nurse, but now he was asleep, sprawled and dimpled and content on his sheets. Mitzi had kicked her sheet and blanket off. It was a warm night, but Iris smoothed the sheet back over her daughter anyway. Truman, like the President of the United States of America. Iris stepped out the back door and watched as the man split a log into sticks of kindling. The kerosene lantern rested on the top of the wood pile, casting a circle of yellow light. His sleeves were rolled up and he'd already chopped a fair amount of wood. Iris watched him for several minutes until he looked up and saw her. What happened to the car? she asked. Ma'am? The big car with all the violins in the trunk. And your friend, the violinist, what happened to him? My partner decided to run off with my share of the money. That's the danger of working with a con man. Sometimes you get conned. So I decided I didn't need a partner anymore, and I traded in for a different gig. Offering to work for food? If you knock on a stranger's door and ask to come in for a friendly chat, sometimes they set the dog on you. Wash up and come back on in the house. I don't want to be gone for too long. And I don't trust you out here without someone to keep an eye on you. Yes, ma'am. Back in the house, all was quiet and still. The man's knapsack was under the kitchen table. Iris wondered what she'd find in it if she looked. More violins? Patent snake oil guaranteed to cure baldness, madness, tuberculosis? Stock certificates for a silver mine? A crystal ball, actually, the stranger. Leo, she thought, that's what he called himself before, said from the doorway. I tell fortunes these days. He settled himself back at the kitchen table, uninvited. I did well by yours, didn't I? Ben came home. He's a good husband, not like your sister's truck driver, whose trips keep getting longer and longer. You have a daughter and a son, just like I said. You're an awful good guesser, Iris said. Do you want me to tell your fortune again? Tell me if we'll be safe from TB. Tell me if my daughter will grow up healthy. Tell me if we'll be able to stay in Virginia, or if we'll lose our farm like Ben's family lost his when he was a young man. Iris bit her lip and turned her back on him. No, she said. Trust in God, not in charming violin salesmen who know things that are none of their business. Behind her, she heard the man sigh. You are my worst nightmare and my fondest recollection, Miss At Least They Didn't Name Me Petunia, he said. I should get my daddy and have him throw you out, or get that shotgun that Ben taught me how to use. Let your daddy sleep. I'll leave if you ask, though it would warm my heart if you'd give me a cup of tea first. The room was already too warm, but Iris added some wood to the stove and put the kettle on. You can have your cup of tea, and then I think I'll need to say good night to you. Yes, ma'am. The water was hot. She made him a cup of tea and set it down in front of him, not sitting down herself. He downed it meekly in silence. The minutes ticked by. Just tell me if my daughter will grow up healthy, Iris said. That's all I want to know. Eric's a big, strong boy. I don't worry about him, even with my father upstairs. But Mitzi... The stranger let out his breath in a sigh, and for a moment her blood went cold. But then he said, Your daughter will grow up healthy. She'll have three children of her own some day. He straightened up in his chair, turning his cup around and around in his hands as if he were reading the leaves, even though she'd used a tea bag. She's going to become a college professor. In fact, both of your children are going to become college professors. Iris laughed out loud at that. Ben had tried to go to college before the war, but his family hadn't been able to afford it after the first year. You think that's funny? 
Your Ben's going to go back to college, and when he graduates, he'll become a teacher. You, great lady, will have to settle for working at a college. You're going to have to move to Ohio because after the Browns win their lawsuit, no Virginia school district is going to be willing to hire a Yankee school teacher, but you'll like Ohio. I can't believe a word this man is saying, she thought. The man set his empty cup down and picked up his bag. He put his hat on and turned to go. When a con man tells fortunes, he doesn't usually tell the good parts. He tells the bad and hints of dire fates that can be averted only by copious payment to the piper. But I do not cheat honest men, and I remember you, ma'am, even if that waitress has long since forgotten about the night she almost bought a Stradivarius violin. Let me tell you one more thing about Mitzi, he added, and her heart leapt to her throat. I'll tell you that she won't much care for that nickname when she gets older. Amelia is going to want people to call her Amy. And with that, he stepped down off the porch and strode away into the night, leaving the house quiet and still. Iris washed and dried the teacup and put it away. I never told him Mitzi's real name, she thought. I really hope that means the rest of what he said was true. College for Ben and for both of my children. But I'm not sure how we'd manage that for Ben, even with the government money. We need money to live on. We barely scrape by as it is. Well, maybe after my father goes to the sanatorium, we can move into Lynchburg, and I can open a nursery school, take care of some of the children in the neighborhood. Maybe Ben can keep working nights, go to classes during the day. Maybe. If it's meant to be, then of course we'll be able to find a way. Petunia Lucky, Springfield, Ohio, October twenty-fifth, 1999. The house was far too quiet with Ben gone. It was strange. He'd been in a nursing home for a few months before he died, not living at home, yet the house was far quieter now than it was then. There was the TV for noise, and Blossom, the old Airedale Terrier, would pad around the house after Iris, but it didn't help much. If only people lived closer. But Amy lived in Wisconsin, Eric lived in Canada, even the grandchildren were scattered around the country. Iris couldn't hear the mail arrive, but Blossom could. She pricked up her ears, even half asleep, and Iris got up to bring it in. Bills, charitable requests, sales pitches, and more bills. It was strange how expensive it was just to die. Ben had died in August, and it seemed like she was still getting bills related to his death. Past due, one of them said in accusing red letters, though Iris was quite certain she'd paid every bill she'd seen. She sat down with a sigh and opened the envelope. Environmental permit fees, interment, the bill said. It had the seal of the state of Ohio on it and some other gobbledygook, and the amount at the bottom was $824 plus a 10% fee for being late, so $906.40 in all. She groaned and reached for the checkbook again. Something made her stop, though, and take a closer look. It looked like something from the state, but it was a plain post office box address on the self-addressed envelope inside. Was this even a real bill, or was it someone trying to take advantage of a grieving older woman by sending bills knowing she might not know how to tell a real bill from a fake? A horrible suspicion struck her, and she went upstairs to her filing cabinet. She recognized the bills from the funeral home, the bills from the doctor and the nursing home, but there were six more bills that on close examination, she realized, had been sent from similarly suspicious post office boxes, though each had a different number, and she paid them one for $64, one for $135, one for $214, 
one for $265, one for $412, and one for $524.13. $1,614.13. She felt sick. How could I have been so gullible? Why didn't I look more closely at these, if only Ben were here? And that made her cry again, alone in her little sewing room, until Blossom dragged her creaking self upstairs to lick her hand and wag her tail and ask for a walk. Even though, as old as Blossom was, she was happier staying home. She knows I need a walk, though. She's a good dog. Out in the fresh air, Iris felt a little calmer. It was a beautiful October day. The sky was blue, the air was crisp, the leaves were changing colors. Her neighbors had pumpkins out on their front steps. It would be time to go buy candy soon for the trick-or-treaters. She'd get to see all the neighborhood kids dressed up in costumes. That was always so much fun. After she'd thought for a while about pleasant things, she felt a bit better. But now what do I do? The gall of sending her a bill marked overdue when they had already built her out of over $1,600 made Iris shake her head. They say you can't cheat an honest man, but it was my honesty that they were taking advantage of. They knew I'm the sort of person who takes care of bills as quickly as I can. They knew that from the very first bill I paid. Maybe my son-in-law can help. Amy had married a thoroughly reliable man. Iris's son-in-law was able to straighten out all kinds of mix-ups, but the thought of explaining to him that she'd paid six fake bills without realizing it made her cheeks flush. No, it's too embarrassing. I'll just live a little more frugally for a while. Make up the money and forget about it. It could make a person angry, though. For the first time in years, Iris found herself thinking about the violin man, Leo Franklin or Joe Truman or whatever his real name was. He'd probably be calling himself Will Clinton these days. It was a little absurd to think that the world needed more of any kind of con man, but... If it's going to have con men, I think I like the sort of con men that take advantage of dishonesty rather than honesty. Back in her house, she was drinking a glass of iced tea when someone knocked at her door. For a moment, she imagined that it would be her long-ago visitor back again for some reason, but when she opened the door, it was a young man, not an old one. He started to say something about a truckload of meat that was going to spoil if he didn't find people to buy it, and she shook her head and said, I really don't eat much meat anymore. He looked into her face and then said, My name is Leo Clinton. Leo, like the boy who went down with the Titanic. Clinton, like the President of the United States of America. It's him. She hesitated for a moment, but Leo never did me any wrong. Why not ask him what he thinks? He might know if I have any chance of getting my money back. Come on in, Leo, she said. I'll get you some iced tea. The TV was on when he came in, blaring into the empty room. She shut it off. You'll have to pardon me if I miss some of what you're saying. I'm a bit deaf these days, though I do wear a hearing aid. She poured two glasses of iced tea. Blossom came over to investigate the stranger, sniffed him a few times, then flopped back down by the door. Many years of happiness, yes, Leo said when she sat down, just like I told you. Fifty-three, Iris said. Fifty-three years and six months. All of them happy? Iris thought about the Alzheimer's, the Parkinson's, the broken hip and pneumonia, the last weeks when Ben was so frail and helpless. I wouldn't trade even one day of that time for anything, she said, knowing that her voice had faltered a bit. Leo didn't say anything, so she added, he wrote poems for me, every birthday, every Valentine's Day, every anniversary, until the Alzheimer's made that too hard for him. 
My daughter typed up all his poems last year and had them bound into a book for us. My granddaughters read some of those poems at Ben's funeral. I never met your husband, Leo said, but I know he must have been a fine man. He was so good to me, Ira said. He was the best husband in the world. I'm very sorry for your loss, ma'am. Thank you. Outside, a truck rumbled past. About those bills you were wondering about, Leo said, those weren't me. I know, Iris said. You said you only cheat the dishonest. The unfairness of it welled up again for a moment, and she sighed deeply and put her glass down. Well, what's done is done, I guess. I don't suppose calling the police will make any difference. They'll take your report if that's what matters to you. But if it were easy to catch con men, then fewer people would be conned. Con men are a slippery bunch. You would know. They don't come more slippery than me. He gave her an amiable grin. Was he always so young, she wondered. He looked old when I saw him the first time. Well, maybe not old, but older than me. You think there isn't anything I can do? No, I'm saying that going to the police probably won't get you your money back. I have another option if you're interested. What's that? Cheat the cheater. I can help you figure out who got your money, and I can help you clean out his bank account. We'll have to work together, though. Some cons work best with two. Are you with me? Iris thought it over. It could be dangerous, she thought. I wish Ben could advise me. What would Ben do? Her responsible son-in-law would never countenance it. That was certain. She smiled. All right, she said. I'll give it a try. The first step is to find out who our Mark really is. His post office box is undoubtedly under a false name, but that's okay. We'll find out the real one. The box address had been in Xenia, so they'd driven there to stake out the post office. It only takes a day for mail to get from here to there. You paid promptly every other time, so he'll no doubt be checking his box today. On Leo's instructions, Iris had sent not a check, but a written request to pay in installments. You don't want to give the mark any more of your money, but you don't want him to know that you're on to him either. He'll have to write back and tell you it's fine, and then check back for your first payment in a couple of days. So if we somehow miss spotting him today, we'll have another chance. He's got box number 3536. Your job is to loiter in the lobby. I'll wait out front in the car. When you see the mark, don't talk to him. Just make sure you follow him out so I see who he is, too. Then try to follow him to his car so that you can see the license plate number. Remember it, and then write it down as soon as you can, not while he can see you. Iris had worried that someone would ask her what she was doing standing around in the entryway to the post office, but no one did. The wait was boring. She had to watch box 3536 like a hawk while not looking like she was watching it, since the man, the Mark, might notice that. Leo had thought the Mark would be there early, and sure enough, in the morning rush, Iris glimpsed him. He wasn't opening the mail, just shoving it into the pocket of his coat. She turned and followed him. Here, allow me. Thank you. She realized the Mark had just held the door for her. She paused to let him get ahead of her and then fell into step behind him, trailing after him to keep an eye on him in the parking lot. And there was the car, a red sedan. Iris didn't really know cars, but this one was shiny and very new-looking. Ripping off old ladies must pay well. License plate, license plate. She spotted it as he pulled away and realized it was one of those plates with a word on it. M-R-L-K-Y. Mr. Lucky. Do we follow his car? Iris asked. 
No, that's much too easy to spot. No, our next stop is the police station. You're going to get his name and address. I am? They're not supposed to give that out, but you're not a suspicious character. You're a sweet older woman, and if you have a good story, you can get any information out of them that you ask for, I bet. Can you think up a good story? I'll have to consider that, Iris said, and leaned back and closed her eyes. Let me know when we get there. Excuse me, young lady. I was wondering if you could help me, please. The receptionist looked up. She was about the age of Iris's daughter, 50, and clearly a little startled to be addressed as young lady, but she smiled kindly at Iris when she saw her white hair. I'll do what I can, ma'am. What's the problem? I was wondering if you could give me the name and address of the person with this license plate. Iris spread out the torn piece of notebook paper on which she'd written Mr. Lucky. We're not supposed to just give those out. Did he sideswipe you or something? The receptionist frowned. Oh, no, nothing like that. Oh, I'm so embarrassed about this. Iris sighed. You see, I was in a parking lot, and when I opened my car door, I hit his car and made a dent. I knew I should leave a note for him with my name and address, but the pen in my purse didn't work, so I went into the grocery store to borrow a pen, and while I was in there, he must have come back, because when I came out, his car was gone. I feel just terrible. It was such a nice car. Shiny new paint. He must just hate me. Or what if his wife was driving it? If he has a wife, he'll probably blame her. If I just knew his address, I could send him a letter through the mail and offer to pay to fix it. The receptionist was standing up, a kind smile on her face. You wait right here, ma'am. I'll see what I can do. To Iris's horror, the receptionist returned with a police officer. Was it illegal to ding someone's car and walk away without leaving a note? Iris felt faint with horror, but he just said, I hear you want to make things right with some man with a red car. There was nothing for it, so Iris swallowed hard and told the story again. Ah, let her have it, the police officer said, and the receptionist handed over a folded note. Don't tell anyone we gave this to you, okay? I won't. Thank you. I appreciate it so much, Iris said, and fled, clutching her purse hard enough that she thought her knuckles were probably bone white. Back in the car, Leo laughed at the look on her face. You got it! You did, I can tell! Let's see what Mr. Lucky's real name is, or at least the name on his driver's license, which is probably also the name on his bank account. Iris unfolded the note, and they looked at it. Jason Beckett, 1 North Pine Circle, Xenia. It had a phone number, too. Now what, Iris said. Now we wait till the sun goes down the night before garbage day and go dumpster diving in Mr. Lucky's trash. This is why everyone should own a paper shredder. Mr. Lucky lived in a gated community, as it turned out, but Iris was able to get them in by explaining to the security guard that she couldn't remember the house number or the phone number, but that Leo was taking her to her granddaughter's friend's house for her great-granddaughter's first birthday party. Great-granddaughter. Well, if one of my grandchildren ever gets around to having children of their own, maybe I'll have one of those. She couldn't remember the house number, but she knew the street. It was Pine Circle, and her granddaughter had promised balloons out front and maybe a banner. The guard waved her through. Once at Pine Circle, they found garbage cans sitting neatly out on the curb. Leo handled this part, popping the trunk open, then throwing the bags in and driving off before anyone saw them. Good party, the security guard asked, seeing them again. Iris shook her head, baffled. I must have the address wrong. She says she has it written down at home, Leo said. We're going to go check. 
He squeezed her hand, and the guard gave him an understanding nod. They drove all the way back to Springfield, dumped the bags of actual garbage out by Iris's trash, and then hauled the sack of paper garbage inside to her dining room, where they could sort through it. To her chagrin, Iris found her own note, crumpled, mixed in with the rest of the paper. There were notes from others as well, requests for itemized bills, pleas for more time to pay. Quite the cottage industry, Leo murmured. Iris looked for envelopes with the addresses of other victims, but didn't find any. Bingo, Leo exclaimed, holding up a folded printout. It was a bank statement, complete with balance and account numbers. High balances. His checking account alone had $42,328.31 in it. Mr. Lucky's was the only name on the account. We still need his signature, Leo said. They found it near the bottom of the pile, a faded carbon from a credit card charge. Iris looked at the crumpled notes from the other creditors. Could we take this to the police, she asked. Would they do anything? We could take it to the police, Leo said. They'd probably be able to arrest him with this. Then the judges would let him out on bail, and off he'd go, and a week later he'd have a new name and a new address and a new post office box. He'd find a way to clean out his bank account on his way out of town. You'd never see your money again. Do you want to go to the police, or do you want to clean out Mr. Lucky? $1,614. Iris thought about it. Clean him out, she said. Great. Next, we're going to take advantage of the great institution of branch banking, where you can pick your geography and guarantee that the teller won't know your name. I'm going to be Mr. Lucky, and you're going to be my lovely bride, Petunia Smith. Aren't we going to have to sign something? I'll handle all the forgery. Iris looked at him dubiously. You're younger than my son. I've been under a lot of stress lately, and I think that's aging me prematurely. Trust me. By tomorrow, I don't think anyone will raise an eyebrow when I say we're getting married. The bank was heated much too warmly, Iris thought, sitting in the chair, clasping her purse. Leo's hair had gone snow-white overnight, and his face appeared drastically aged. They'd just shaken hands with the banker. Leo had introduced himself as Jason Beckett and explained that he wanted to add Petunia to his account and make it joint. We're getting married, he said with a conspiratorial smile. This is my lovely bride, Petunia. Congratulations, the teller said warmly. Petunia, you said? I'm just so thankful my parents didn't name me Heliotrope, Iris said faintly. Well, we'll just need you to fill out some forms. Out came the forms. Iris filled out the form as Petunia Smith using a made-up address and social security number. Surely they have Mr. Lucky's number on file. How is Leo planning to get that? Ah, said Leo as he was filling out his form and put down his pen. I'm having a senior moment here, I think. I can't remember my social. The banker glanced at her computer screen. I can give it to you if you can show me some photo ID, she said. No, that's okay. It's coming back to me now, he said with a broad smile, and filled out the rest of the form. Iris was perplexed for a moment, then remembered that he seemed to be able to read thoughts. I wonder if he's reading my mind right now. He glanced up with a raised brow for her and then signed Mr. Lucky's signature with a flourish. I'll need to see some picture ID, the banker said when they were done. It's just routine, you understand. Leo shook his head slowly, his eyes a little wide. Neither of us drive, he said. Surely you have the state IDs for non-drivers. I'm not in the habit of carrying it, Iris said. It's been a long time since I was carded, Leo said. Can't you just put it through anyway, Iris said. You know, we were really hoping to run off and get married today. 
She leaned forward and in a whisper added, Our children don't approve. We wanted to get this all taken care of before they could find out. Well, I... The banker glanced at both of them. Oh, all right. I'll just put down that you showed me state ID cards. You do have them, don't you? Okay. Petunia's name added to the document, they left the bank and drove to a different branch, where Iris filled out another form to transfer nearly the entire balance of Mr. Lucky's account into yet another account. This time she went in by herself, but Leo gave her the account numbers and told her what to move where. Finally, Leo dropped her off at home. I'll be back tomorrow morning, he said. We need to give the banks time to get the money actually moved over. Right now it's just moved over on paper. And then we can withdraw the entire amount. We'll use cash because that's untraceable. Can you be ready about ten? I surely can, she said. The interior of her house was cool and a little dim. She fed Blossom and then turned on the TV. Thinking over the last couple of days, she alternated between nervous giggles and a rising sense of fear. All that money! Over $42,000! Will they send me to jail if they catch us? Will they let me tell the jury that he stole my money first? She could scarcely sleep that night. My guilty conscience, she thought. I've been greedy. He only took $1,600 from me. I stole... She had to turn on the light to work out the exact sum. Over 26 times what he stole from me. Well, if this works, maybe I'll try to figure out who else he stole from and give the money to them. She had no idea how she'd track down the other victims, but the thought comforted her enough to sleep. She was ready for Leo by 9.30 and sat on her front porch watching one of her neighbors setting out Halloween decorations, a plastic ghost, a witch crashing her broomstick into a tree, a giant grinning pumpkin that was inflated by a fan. The mail arrived and the mailman gave her a wave. She looked at her watch. It was 10.30 and there was no sign of Leo. She picked up her mail to take it in the house and saw an envelope with a hand-addressed label. It wasn't the handwriting of anyone in her family. She sat back down and opened it up. My dear, dear Iris, the letter said, please accept my apologies for my failure to arrive this morning on schedule. I think I did warn you once that con men sometimes get conned by their partners and that I only cheat the dishonest. And stealing a man's money is truly not an honest thing to do, even if he did steal from you first. A small sheaf of bills slipped out of the envelope and onto her lap, followed by a dime and three pennies. I'm sure by now that you've started thinking about it and don't really want most of that money anyway. I have, however, enclosed $1,614.13. It is in unmarked bills and will get you in no trouble with your own bank. In case thinking this over starts to worry you at all, let me reassure you on a couple more points. The bank cameras were not working that day, and even if the banker who handled our account sees you at a later time, she will find you only faintly familiar. She won't remember you as the clever schemer who raided the account of one of their customers. I do not think we'll meet again, but it has been a great pleasure knowing you, and an even greater pleasure working with you. By the way, this time next year, you will be a great-grandmother. Have a wonderful Halloween. The letter was signed C. She wondered if that was supposed to stand for Clinton or if it stood for his real name. Well, that was quite an adventure. She went to get Blossom's leash to take her out for a walk to the bank to deposit her money. It was mostly in tens and twenties, but there was one crisp new hundred-dollar bill. With a faint feeling of mischief, someday my ever-responsible daughter and son-in-law will have to go through these. 
She attached the hundred-dollar bill to the letter with a paper clip and then filed it away. Won't this just make them wonder? Whether you loved or hated today's story, we hope you'll keep checking out more audio fiction. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks that you can download to your personal computer or MP3 player. Listen any when, anywhere. Audible has over 40,000 titles representing every genre, including 1,000 science and technology books and 1,100 science fiction and fantasy titles. Audible has been kind enough to offer a free audiobook to Podcastle listeners who sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash castle today. If I were to pick up something from Audible today, I'd grab the best of Asimov's science fiction magazine. I think Asimov's is one of the most exciting and vital magazines in the industry these days. I'm a subscriber, but sometimes I get too busy to pay as much attention to the stories as I should, and it would be great to be able to listen to them while I'm taking a walk or a road trip. Again, that website is audiblepodcast.com slash castle. Sign up and get your free audiobook today. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. George Burns said, You've got to be honest. If you can fake that, you've got it made. (laughs) 